Here's a question. What did you eat yesterday? Perhaps oats or cereal for breakfast? A glass of fruit juice? An apple for morning tea? Ham, cheese and tomato for lunch? Chops for dinner? It's pretty well certain that a large part of that came from the Murray-Darling River system, the food bowl of Australia. But this is a river system in crisis. Years of overuse, drought and now climate change placing huge stresses on these systems. Welcome to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. I'm Rod Taylor and I'm interviewing Fraser McLeod, Executive Director of the Basin Plan for the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. This is a plan that is going to try to steer the nation's management of the Murray-Darling through the hazardous course of vested interests and environmental concerns. We start by talking about environmental facets of the plan. And one of the things that the Water Act was set up to do was to look at the concept of what, con- what are the key environmental assets of the basin. And the key environmental assets tend to be those that, that meet the what are called the external obligations of the Commonwealth, which means if they're listed as Ramsar-listed wetlands, or if they happen to provide migratory bird um, habitat for things, some of the international treaties we have with China, Japan, and what are called the Migratory Bird Conventions things like the Bonn Convention and, and there's a whole range of these international treaties that provide us with some clarity as, as regards what are the important wetlands that doesn't mean to say they're the only ones but they provide us with a starting point to look at what are the key environmental assets but you then have the situation that assets are only one side of this, we also have to look at things like what are called key ecosystem functions which are the other type of things that, you know we talk about um, river systems and it's important that river systems actually transport sediment through the system flush salts from the system or flush nutrients through the system it's important that depending on how we run these we can actually cause other problems like um, yeah, uh, in geomorphological terms such as erosion and other things, so there's a whole lot of other things not just the assets themselves so it's looking at how we actually improve the ecological health of the river system as a whole while at the same time recognising that that river system sustains, as you pointed out earlier, one of Australia's footballs. Mm. Well, we might break to a track, but when we come back, we might talk about the current health of the Murray-Darling system and what it looks like right now, and especially with regard to uh, the current rain and the droughts and maybe also what's going on down the lower lakes and uh, how the people in Adelaide see all this. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show with me, Rod, and my special guest from the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, Fraser McLeod. This is Air Dance by the Penguin Cafe Orchestra. And that's the Penguin Cafe Orchestra here on Fuzzy Logic on uh, Your Science on a Sunday on Community Radio 2XX. And my guest this year is Fraser McLeod from the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, and my name is Rod. Now, Fraser, how would you describe the state of the river system at the moment? Um, it's one of it's it's a very simple question. Um, unfortunately, it's one of those things that the Murray Darling Basin is quite um, complex and quite diverse. So it actually varies a little bit across the whole basin. It's also probably worthwhile just reflecting on what we mean by the basin, because in a sense, the basin itself, people talk about the Murray Darling, but we're actually talking about twenty three different river valleys um, across the basin. Wow, and um, it, it does occur to me that uh, even Canberra is part of it, isn't it? Because we sit on is. the Cotter catchment, the, the Murrumbidgee. That's right. And I was checking the map this morning, and the Murrumbidgee runs into the Murray around near Balranald in, right. in New South Wales. 
Yes. And we're about to build a dam or increase the size of the Cotter Dam. So did you are. When it's very easy for we Canberrans to always look at somebody else and say it's your problem, but it's actually us as well, isn't it? It is. I mean, the, the Murray-Darling Basin itself is, as I said earlier, it's 1.1 million square kilometres. It's about one-seventh of the Australian continent. Um, it covers six states, in a sense, and there are six governments who have an interest in it, from Queensland, New South Wales the ACT, Victoria, South Australia and the Commonwealth. So all of those governments have an interest in what's going on in the basin. That is made up of 23 river valleys, um, albeit we we think of the two biggest ones being the Murray and the Darling, but there are many, many others. Um, as you said earlier, I mean, it's, it's one of the food bowls. It represents 40% of um, Australians' agriculture, generating $9 billion of export revenues every year. 70% of all irrigated agriculture in Australia takes place within the Murray-Darling Basin. So there's a whole lot of very important statistics about just the, the scale of what, what is going on. So if we were to use a simple descriptor of its health, which I'm hearing is pretty poor, but we're actually talking about a vast area, so maybe that term is not adequate because it depends on where you're talking about. Is that what you're getting it, at? It does. Um, the, the best kind of whole of basin view of ecological health was actually the Sustainable Rivers Audit which was um, published in 2008 now that actually assessed three different elements of all of the different river valleys in the whole of the basin and it came to the conclusion that out of the 23 river valleys there's only one of those that would be considered to be in good health and that's the Paru which is in the far northwest where much of that water is flowing down at the moment from Queensland through to New South Wales over half of the or more than half of the valleys were considered to be in very poor condition Wow and now, now how much of that would be due to human influence and how much would be due to natural climate variability or unnatural climate variability if you like that, that's always a very difficult question to, to judge because the two elements work hand in hand and result in um, changes over time and it's always difficult to know exactly which one is actually the influence of, of the actual ecological health. There is no doubt that when we move from wetter times into drier times, the volumes or the amount of water that is going to what I would call consumptive uses will tend to become a bigger percentage of the overall volume of water. So if you like, in drier times, the environment is always seen as taking a disproportionate hit in the sense of how much it actually contributes or how much of the reductions that, that are available to the environment. Is it, is it just flow or the, or the um, predictability of the flow or, or how regular the flow is? Do you know what I mean? In terms of um, the environment and ecological health, it's a combination of the actual volumes of water, it's a combination of the frequency at which that, those volumes are provided, and it's a combination of the duration at which those volumes are actually there for. So we would tend to think of um, individual assets might actually need what we call a high volume flow for a shop for a period of time. So it would need a certain number of flow events in a 10 year period of a certain volume of water for a certain period of days. And at the other end of the spectrum it might need a much smaller volumes of water more often. So, so it needs high volumes infrequently for a longer period of time and it needs smaller volumes more frequently 
for perhaps longer periods of time. Right. So it is what we've done with dams and weirs and things, we've smoothed out the flows where before it was much more uh, variable. Is that, is that true? Yes, that, that's, you know, and if you look in historical sense, that's, that's essentially one of the things that has been happening is with the dams and the reservoirs, the storages that have been created, particularly in the southern basin, that does tend to take some of the peaks off the floods. And that can be a good thing as well, because I mean, obviously, if you've got floods running down the river, they can have be very damaging, as we're seeing at the moment. But you've got to bear in mind that the southern basin is what we call regulated, so therefore there is many more of these weirs, barrages, and storages, whereas the northern basin is unregulated because these things don't really aren't really there. So the northern basin tends to flow in a much more unregulated way, whereas in the south we're actually managing the water. So it's the northern basin where we've just had these recent uh, yes. rain dumps, haven't we? Yes, that, that's what we would call them, the northern basin. Effectively, the northern basin is all of the river systems that flow into the Darling, um, whereas the southern system is what we would call all of the elements that flow into the Murray. So it takes in the, the Murrumbidgee and the, the, the so catchments. What, what would you days. say the effects of those recent rains has been? The, the effects of those recent rains are, are, are obviously very visible on the surface. There, there is water where there was not water before. Um, clearly, from the perspective of the, the, those people who live in those areas, I mean, very, very valuable in the sense that it will actually provide storage volumes of water, which we'll see them through the next period of time. And ultimately, some of that water will find its way all the way down through the system to the lower lakes and the Murray Mouth. But it's quite interesting. I mean, we think of this as because there is rain that obviously it'll get to the Murray Mouth. That will, the time it takes to travel those 3,000 kilometres, you know, we're talking about, we might know the real impacts of this in maybe 10 days. Um, it'll take, it'll be mid-May before it gets down to Bark. I, I find that fascinating. So we, we have this river system and this basin and science is it's that difficult, isn't it, to, to know what the effect of that... Well, I, I think, I think it goes back to one of the, the conversations we were just having, is that much of the basin is very flat. It's, and as a result, the rivers flow very slowly. We don't have fast-flowing rivers that get to the sea quickly. We have slow-flowing rivers over a very flat landscape that have to travel very long distances. And as a result, it does take a long time for that water to flow through the river systems out through the river mouth. So, so can you give me a, a ballpark estimate for when, if there's a pulse of water down the river from the recent rains, how long would it take, do you think, to get all that 3,000 kilometres? I mean, weeks? Months? Months. Yeah? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's certainly in the order of, I think that it'll be about the middle of May before we see it down towards Bark, which is heading down towards Menindee. And you then get it another period of weeks before it gets down to the Murray Mouth. So that's putting it into the ballpark of a couple of months at least. Well, now, we, we have a whole team of staff who are called our river operations team who would know the answers to that exactly and could give you, tell you exactly when it'll get to different places up and down the river. Uh, now there's a couple of features of the Murray-Darling plan that you're about to release that um, Sam here, who's by the way watching from the studio, uh, has told me. And one is that... Um, the allocations are going to be based on the flows at any given time as opposed to at an arbitrary point in the past. Is that correct? Have I got that right? We've, one of the things we've been looking at is <coughs> when we try to work out how you balance the water between consumption and the environment, we have long records of data going back, in some cases over 118 years. 
so we understand what volumes of water were there at different points in time but the difficulty you've got with that is that all of that has got lots of development lots of storages, barrages, weirs so we've got to look at that record and it's not necessarily a good predictor of the future so what we've got to look at is trying to trying to provide a platform that says this is the long term average sustainable volumes of water that you can extract but you've also got to recognise that long term averages in the in the, the Murray-Darling Basin can be very wet periods through to as you said droughts so the long term average sits in the middle so we've got to also provide for the variability as well so that deals with um, the point in so time. So you are going to try to account for that variability? We have to try and account for that variability and there's okay. been over, over a century or more I mean there's been procedures put in place to manage that variability as well as to manage the long term extraction so there are a lot of practical arrangements in place that help us do that and we'll be looking at those um, as to how they will support the the new arrangements of the basin plan. So being, being a systems kind of person, I think there's three elements, uh, and I want to know how you measure each of these elements. You've got what's coming in, the inflows, you've got what's in storage, and then what's going out, which is what the extractions are for various purposes. How do you know each of those things? Across the basin, there are, across the basin, there are many, many measurement stations taking measurements on daily, weekly, even hourly cycles, we have some measurement stations that are even operating in near real time. So there's a lot of data being collected about all of these different elements. If you look at inflows, most of that really comes from the rainfall stations, that, so we depend heavily on the Bureau of Meteorology, but we measure the amount of actual physical rainfall that exists, and from that we can extrapolate in a volumetric term what that means for the river system. So we can point out if there's this amount of rainfall, this is then how much volumes of water come into the river system. As the water flows down through the river, river system, <coughs> we are measuring constantly the depth of the river. So when we talk about volumes, it's very difficult to measure the volume of water that's flowing past a point in a river. There's some very... Um, if, if you wanted to go into the designs of hydrometric gauging stations and how you have to shape the water column in order to be able to convert height of water to volume, I mean, that's a science in itself, and there's a whole body of evidence about how you do that. <coughs> but let's just say that at various points down the river, we measure the volume of water that's flowing past that point, and that includes at the barrages at the Murray Mouth as to how much water goes through there. So that deals with how we measure flow up and down the river. In terms of extractions, um, where, ex there, where there are major extractions, I mean, they, they tend to be metered, so there is actually a metering measuring the volumes of water being extracted. Not all extractions are metered, because what you, when you look at it, there are some that are very small volumes that are being extracted, and the cost of installing meters and the ability to install meters is difficult because clearly metering tends to operate very well on piped systems, not necessarily on um, open irrigation. So systems. the agricultural properties and things <coughs> up and down the river, if they've got a little canal dug in, there's a little wheel or something that's measuring the amount of water that's flowing through that, and then how much they're extracting. Is that the sort of thing? That, that's the sort of thing that is that is there. Is that there's, there's a, and there has been investment through the Commonwealth and state governments over quite a number of years to try and increase 
the amount of metering of water so that we better understand the actual extraction volumes mm -hmm. um, and that is a program that still continues under the Commonwealth Water for the future arrangements. So for, on a scale <coughs> from poor to excellent how would you say what would you rate our knowledge of these flows based on these sorts of uh, techniques? In the southern connected system, so again going back to breaking the, the, the basin into two parts, in the southern connected system it's actually pretty good um, because we have been making the, many of those measurements over a very long period of time mm -hmm. and there tends to be a much higher density of measurement points because it is regulated. When you go up into the northern part of the basin it's probably not so good because there is less measurement over a lot lesser period of time and because the situation is that many of the streams are more ephemeral you do, you've, there hasn't been the same investment in the um, measurement of water volumes so you tend to find those um, measurement points tend to be more focused towards the specific irrigation areas or extractive points ah, okay. so when you go out into the less well developed parts of the basin you will tend to find less investment in the measurement of water use ah. because it, the measurement or the, the density of measurement tends to be focused towards the parts of the basin that are most highly developed. Yes, I guess you'd expect that. Now, the other interesting feature of the plan that Sam told me about was that um, you are going to be taking into account groundwater. So it strikes me that a river system has the really obvious part, which is the, the banks and the levees and the, and the bit that flows down the part you can see. There's actually this whole other part to the system which is underground and I understand that you're going to be bringing that into your modelling as well. Yes, the, the groundwater is for the, this will be the first time that it's really been looked at at a basin scale. Um, we think of rivers as being well defined and we, you, you can see them for a start so you've got a, a certain advantage. Um, in groundwater terms, I mean, there is actually a relatively well defined boundaries to underground aquifers but they're obviously more complex in nature and obviously the ability to measure them is more complex because you can't actually physically see them. There are a whole network of groundwater monitoring bores across the basin which, from which data is drawn about the depth. Essentially they measure the depth to groundwater mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that information helps us understand how much water is, is there and how much is being extracted. The bigger problem we've got is that we, we talk about groundwater and surface water as if they're separate <coughs> but they're actually very, can be very highly interconnected. So, yes. for example, if you are, if you are extracting groundwater through a bore, and the river is flowing just a short distance away, it might be no great surprise that the water from the river is actually what's recharging the aquifer that you're drawing out from groundwater. So, there are some major challenges in <coughs> accounting for this interconnectedness between groundwater and surface water and depending on the geology or the underpinning geology that connection can be um, much stronger in some areas than in others so it's not a, it's not the same interconnection everywhere it actually is quite different it depends, in some on, the geology it depends on the geology ah. now I've actually noticed this in my little creek that flows close to my house in Jindera uh, Creek and it used to be that that little and they, they put a spoon drain in because what does an engineer call uh, a stream, they call it a drain. So they, they turned it into a concrete spoon drain, but it used to never ever really run dry. But in the last 10 years, I've noticed that it only takes a few weeks of dry for that creek to run, to stop flowing, which mm. never used to happen. And my suspicion is that the groundwater in our area has actually dropped quite a bit. 
and the, so the flows, when it does rain, are absorbed into the ground very quickly. You have, in general terms, I mean in a lot of sedimentary areas, you have what are called relatively shallow aquifers, mm-hmm. which tend to be very highly, highly responsive to rain events. So they can be depleted fairly quickly, but they recharge very quickly. But you also have, in many areas, much deeper um, confined deeper aquifers, which are dependent on um, recharge rates over many periods of years. And you actually have, if you were to look at things like the Great Artesian Basin, some of which is within the Murray-Darling Basin, um, you actually have the situation, they, they often talk about fossil water. So it's water which actually is considered to be over a mil- millions of years old so the recharge rates are very slow and take a long long time to get there so again you'll find some of these impacts in shallow aquifers and responsive to surface water very readily but in many of the bigger regional aquifers or the, the deeper ones they tend to be much less responsive to what you might perceive as rainfall events and they were recharged over a longer period of time uh, so I, I have heard a lot about this over the years that we are over extracting from our basins from the uh, the groundwater do do we have a sense of how much impact we've had on from the water extractions from this source we we do we we do have some knowledge i mean but again you've got to, you've got to look at this in the context of water quality much of the groundwater in australia is is highly salinized so it's not necessarily um used in the context of or, or it's actually too salty to use for many for many purposes so there's actually a lot more water there that we could potentially use if we could actually reduce its salinity levels so when we talk about um, people talking about over extraction of groundwater you're actually talking about fit for purpose water you can't just make a generalization that we're over extracting it because the physical volumes of water could be much significantly greater than you imagine um, so we're starting to find industries I mean certainly from the point of view of mining industries can use salty water for things like dust suppression and so on so we're actually finding more uses of more water so we're opening up more of the water that water resource for use as opposed to necessarily depleting a small portion of that resource whereas with surface water it tends to be of better quality generally so it's got a much more it's fit for a much broader range of purposes okay so in the future, when you're looking back at the effects of the plan that you're about to introduce, how will you know that it's been a good plan or, or that you need to change it in some way? I think that is always, that is always one of the vexed questions because um, w- there will be as part of the plan what's called a monitoring and evaluation framework, which is essentially which will look to um, identify the things we have to measure and the frequency at which we have to measure them to understand whether the actions of the plan are having an impact, either positive or negative. Now, some of that will be around environmental indicators, so some people, that could be around things like salinity levels, or it might be around, um, you might also measure things like turbidity and various other parameters for water quality. When it comes to sustainable diversion limits, as we call them, We'll obviously have to measure extractions and how much water is being extracted and to understand are people living within the limits that are being set by the plan. There will also be information about um, bird health, breeding, fish populations across the basin to understand the ecological health of the river and the floodplain. So there's a whole variety of different parameters that will be measured. And these will be the parameters that will then be looked at and certainly 
in my view, we're, we're going to move into a situation of reporting against that with a degree of regularity so that people can understand what is changing about the basin. Is it improving? If so, which elements are improving, which, which elements might not be improving? The Water Act also creates a, a statutory review process as well, which demands that there are independent assessments of the implementation of the plan to understand is it working. Right. So this is, this is really about creating what, what from a technical point of view we talk about adaptive management, but it's trying to create a framework and an environment where we can actually understand how things are changing and respond to those changes. Mm. In an ecological health point of view, unfortunately, some of the changes we might desire might only come about after a long period of time. So uh, now just on an item of personal opinion here, we have a, a Prime Minister who is... Uh, promoting very keen on the idea of boosting the population of Australia. Did, what's your personal feeling about how Australia's going to cope with 60% more people or 36 million or 50 million people in the year 2050, does it? How, do, how, how do you feel about that? I think in some sense it would be inappropriate of me to offer comment on that because clearly a lot of the population growth areas will be outside of the area that I'm interested in. Um, I would be expecting much of that population growth is largely going to be in the coastal zone. And in, in terms of um, its impact on our productive ability, do you, do you think our productive ability will be able to keep pace with this? If you look at the, the basin and its development over a long period of time, it's quite clear that um, the Murray-Darling Basin has, has been able to be a major generator of food and fibre for the nation. And given all of the investment and the innovation that is on taking place in regard to the water use efficiency and how we actually use water better, there is scope for further development in that regard. But I think one of the, key, the, the challenges will be the extent to which one actually f looks at this balance between consumptive or productive use of water versus the, the, va the, the value that the nation might perceive from its ecological and environmental health. And that, I think, is going to be one of the key challenges or the key debate, areas of debate. And it's one of the reasons why the, the Basin Plan has been looked to be brought in, because some people are of, the, <coughs> excuse me, are of the view that, at the moment, the environment is paying too high a price. And that, I think, is... And I think you will notice that there is considerable debate, not just in Australia, but globally, um, with regard to the debate between the environment versus consumptive use of water. It's not a, a situation unique to this country. Yeah, and I think that's probably a good way uh, to end the show because, uh, and also have great sympathy for the, the complexity of the task it faces you. Not only do you have a very complicated and vast system to deal with, but there are so many people who have an opinion about it and some very strong opinions. And the Murray-Darling plan coming out in the next few months uh, is going to be our attempt at dealing with it. So thank you very much for coming onto the show, uh, Fraser. It's my pleasure. And certainly I think that while there are many people with very different opinions about what we are doing and what the shape of the future will be, I mean, what we're looking to do is put out a plan which will be for a proposal which will be out for consultation for somewhere approaching four months. So there will be a very significant opportunity for everyone to air their views as regards what we actually prepare and we would certainly be looking welcome the opportunity to gain that feedback so that the plan can actually serve the basin to its best effect. 
Okay, thank you very much. We'll come back next Sunday because we have the author of Overloading Australia, and that's Mark O'Connor, will be appearing on Fuzzy Logic next Sunday. And next month I have a neuroscientist coming on the show from the John Curtin School of Medical Research, and I'm really looking forward to that because I think things to do with the brain are really fascinating. And thank you very much for your time uh, this morning, Fraser, and thank you, Sam, for uh, sitting there patiently watching the whole show.